0: welcome to new books and film a podcast series on the new books network i'm your host joel Cherney. my guest today is bernard f dick author of the book engulfed the death of paramount pictures and the birth of corporate hollywood published in 2021 by university press of kentucky in our talk we discuss paramount as an example of how a major studio from the early days of hollywood was taken over by an outside company and became a part of the regular business economy. I hope you enjoy my interview with Bernard F. Dick. Hi Bernard, how are you today?
1: I'm fine, and yourself?
0: I'm very good, thank you. Uh, We're talking about your book, Engulfed, The Death of Paramount Pictures and the Birth of Corporate Hollywood. Um, Coming out in a new edition with uh, updated um, introduction that updates the material from the original edition. But uh, all the material in here is a discussion of the, of the of uh, what became the corporation Paramount or became part of other corporations, but started as one of the original, one of the first studios in, your, in Hollywood. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Obviously, um, this is not your first book or only book on the subject of, of movies. That's one of it is basically your your background. Um, talk a little bit about how you got into film in the first place. I know you 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 were a professor, and then you were you've written a number of books, including also on other studios. So let's talk a little bit about where you uh, you know how you first started working with film study.
1: Well, actually, I don't have a degree in film studies. As a matter of fact, my doctorate is in Latin and Greek. Which does sound odd, but you know, in the 70s, when people started taking film seriously, a lot of us who had degrees in other disciplines like English, like history, just developed this interest in film because we grew up with it and it had become an academic discipline and therefore, at least in many circles, respectable. Uh, so I just I gravitated uh, to uh, film. I had an opportunity to teach a course in the history of film, and that led to my doing a um, textbook called Anatomy of Film. And then from then on, it uh, was just one thing after another. So I just stayed in film. I moved out of uh, classical languages. I moved out of literary criticism and into uh, film criticism. So for me, it was a very natural journey although I know it sounds odd going from Latin and Greek to film.
0: Well, you were right about the time period. That's, uh, I can think of another profession where that kind of thing happened, and that's computers. Early on, when the schools weren't putting out people, uh, there was a lot of, quote-unquote, on-the-job training Mm, (laughs) back in the 70s and 80s, and people were just hired and worked through it and learned things as they go. And, And nowadays, as with film it's become a more um normal degree program or at least study program. Uh I know some of your other books I mean obviously how Wallace is important to um Paramount's story and you wrote a book about him you've written one on on uh Audrey Hepburn I think and then didn't no, you also uh, I'm sorry.
1: Uh, no, uh Lillian Hellman uh and um I never did anything on Audrey Hepburn, uh, Billy Wilder, um, uh, Billy Wilder, and uh, Harry Cohn of Columbia Pictures. Yeah,
0: right. So um, I, I hesitate to call it the golden age of Hollywood because that's a word that's used regularly. But
1: um, well, it was well, though.
0: Yeah, it it it's one of those things where it's still called that, and yet uh, one of the things that I, with all the reading I do about. Um, older uh, Hollywood uh, producers, directors, actors, and studios is they were definitely, uh, the, the studio system was producing a lot of stuff, and while we obviously have our well-known movies from that period of time, there was a lot of other things, the B movies and even some of the so-called Top Bill movies uh, are unfortunately forgotten as well, although we're starting to see more and more availability of them in mm-hmm. uh so many different formats in the days of streaming and and other online formats. So, let's talk about Paramount Films, though, or Paramount Pictures, because that's the reason. What what made you decide at the time uh, that this was ripe for a for a book on the subject? I know you've you in the introduction you specifically or the you specifically state that it's not meant to be an overall history of the of the of the uh, studio, but Obviously, it turns into one because of the way you had to cover it from the beginning. What led you to to work on Paramount?
1: Uh, Well, um, I always look for archives. uh, And it it just so happened that George Welsner, who was the last president of Paramount Pictures before it was absorbed by uh, Gulf and Western, left his papers at the... um, Uh, American Heritage uh, Institute at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. And uh, I think once I discovered that there was a real treasure trove there, I realized that um, a a book would naturally come out of all of this because nobody else had previously used the Welchner papers. So that was part of it. Um, Also, uh, I was very interested in the what happened in the silent, well, actually it is called Silent Movie, uh, the Mel Brooks film, uh, in which Sid Caesar plays a um, studio head who discovers that his little studio has been taken over by what was called in the movie Engulf and Devour, which is obviously Gulf and Western. And uh, that, coupled with the fact that growing up, as I did in the 1940s, Paramount Pictures was really, um, probably at the time, my favorite studio, because I really could not relate very much to the the MGM product. I found, actually, Mimi and St. Louis uh, abominable. I mean, I was only eight or nine at the time, but, you know... When the father comes home and says, you know, we're going to have to move to New York and the kids say, oh, my God, leave St. Louis and go to New York. I mean, my God, I would have given growing up as I did in Scranton, Pennsylvania, I would have given anything to go to New York. And I just could not understand that kind of a film. But, you see, the Paramount films at the time, particularly the road movies, with Bing Crosby, Bob Hope and George Moore, they were very accessible to kids and the Betty Hutton movies were very accessible to kids. So yeah, Paramount was a great favorite of mine, yeah, bad and universal.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, right at the, towards the beginning of the book, you talk about this, and, and nowadays people don't think about it because, you know, uh, it's, unless you're studying studio histories, that each of the major studios had its specialties, and it's specializations in many ways so for example you mentioned that universal was particularly known for its monster and horror films and some of the other ones that you've mentioned and so um paramount what you as you just said it was they tended to make movies that were accessible and uh therefore became uh popular in that way um and and what and you've said that uh, some of the other ones weren't as interesting to you
1: Yes, that's true. Um, Paramount, Universal, and Warner Brothers uh, were my favorite studios. I mean, I adored Betty Davis. I mean, I just never saw anything like that. That was a phenomenon, you know. And um, actors like Bogart and Cagney—they were all so distinctive. And although they talked very fast, you could understand every word they said, as opposed to today. Frankly, you know, I if I get Maybe half of the dialogue I'm doing well
0: uh, yeah that's there's no question. The concepts of movie making have changed so much and and uh the concepts of of how people uh, consume that ma- material has changed so much from the the older period. I've seen a couple of things where even as time went on during the golden age period where like there was a remake of some films and you see differences with how it's presented, even from one year to maybe four or five years later. So yeah. the changes was constant. So um, at the first chapter obviously is meant to be a uh, an overall history of of the the studio and how it started. Obviously, Adolf Zukor is the uh, person who is most known for um, the studio by name. Uh, he lived throughout this for a good portion of this period and, you know, into his into his 90s. So uh, he was there uh, for a lot of this. And, and in many ways, he was similar to some of the other uh, studio heads or people that became studio heads back in that period in that he started with... He was a, an immigrant, and he started with... Or his family was, maybe. I don't remember the specifics now, um, but learned about... Movies from the Nickelodeons and the uh, other basic filming filmmaking that was going on in the early two thousand, you know, early 1900s. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Zucor and what he brought to uh, what became Paramount Pictures.
1: Well, uh, Zukor um, actually began as a furrier. Um, I mean, he was was certainly aware of the Nickelodeon business, and particularly the kinetoscope machines. They were peep show uh, machines. You put whatever it was, a nickel in the slot, you turn the uh, wheel, uh, and uh, you would see uh, film clips. And they were very big in penny arcades. So um, he realized that there was a business there, and then he went into the Penny Arcade business. Then when the Nickelodeon era began, he went into the purchase of Nickelodeons because it was not very difficult to open up a Nickelodeon. You looked for a a storefront, and um, you got film, you got a projector, you rented chairs from a funeral parlor or some social club, and you could get a marker for yourself uh, to um, uh, popularize your uh, fare for the day, and uh, that, that was it. But it didn't stop there. I think once you are bitten by the exhibition bug and you start opening up uh, Decolonions, then you know you realize that you're going to have to get product for those Nickelodeons. You're going to have to go to the film exchanges and pick up films to be shown. So you go into distribution. Why do I have to go to film exchanges? I'll open up my own uh, film exchange or um, series of film exchanges. But then that's not enough. You have to go into production, and that's what actually did happen. He hooked up with this uh, man called uh, Hodgkinson, uh, and Hodgkinson had a uh, exchange called Progressive Film. Uh, and he wanted a company that whose name began with a P. Well, he couldn't use Progressive because it was the name of the uh, distribution company. So he came up with Paramount. And that wasn't enough because so you have a picture of a mountain top. But you know, one mountain top is like any other mountaintop. So he decided to encircle the mountain with uh, stars. So it became a star spangled mountain. And that became and it is even true today, the Paramount logo.
0: All right. It's <clears throat> there are a few of those logos. <clears throat> Paramount's the most obvious one, but universal still has the the globe logo at least in some format or another and uh 20th century fox even though at the time when it first was just fox when it first started but they're still using a logo that's pretty similar so the studio at least that part of that period uh still those logos are still considered to be important as far as distinguishing the studio
1: Well, you know they they distinguish the studios today, but let's face it. I mean, you know, a a film made by 20th Century Fox today uh, could could be made could have been made by Columbia, depending on who cut the deal. You know,
0: and we've seen that now, especially with the remake. You know, with all these, uh, with the norm now of. Series of movies and such, uh, those kind of things change. The James Bond movies obviously started with United Artists, but that doesn't exist anymore. And they've gone all over the place. I think they're with Sony now. So uh, depending on the age of the film, you definitely see a different logo because, as you point out, they're... Basically, the studio or whoever says there, whoever identifies themselves as the studio is is just a distributor
1: in this case. Yeah, that's all. That's all the studios are. they studios in name only. They're distribution outfits.
0: So uh, Zucker obviously followed the. You know, is one of the first to, or not one of the first, but one of the few initial folks who, who started studios just to get material, and then also was buying up property in order to come up with a, a, a way to uh to show the material so we early on in the studio system we have this where not only is it just the fact that you're the producer but you're also the exhibitor which of course would eventually come back to haunt them but some of the important aspects of uh paramount are their various theaters including oh my, my
1: goodness head. yes um I remember when, uh, well, Paramount had the biggest theater chain of any of the studios. It was called Paramount Publics. But, Lord, I remember coming to New York well, for, oh, maybe the second or third time, and I just had to see the Paramount Theater, which was on Broadway between 43rd and 44th Street. And that's where, of course, Frank Sinatra um, was mobbed whenever he appeared uh, at the Paramount, because in those days, at certain theaters in New York, like the Paramount, like the Capitol, um, you had not only the feature film, but you had a stage show. And the stage show would very frequently um, um, feature um, top singers like Fran Warren, like Joe Stafford, of course, like Frank Sinatra. But, you know, I had to see the Paramount, and, of course, what it is today is the Hard Rock Café. But the facade is still there because you had the Paramount Theater at ground level and then you had the uh, offices above, the Paramount offices above. It was 1501 Broadway.
0: I know. I, I, I'm I from Cleveland, although I don't live there right now. And we have a number of older theaters that used to uh, show... Uh, feature films, and uh, I mean, still remember going there to see Sound of Music when it first came out uh, in a road show and, and, you know, reserve seating and everything. And oh, yeah, was. sure. So, uh, obviously, though, Paramount became very successful pretty early on in the this, in this sense that they were able to uh, develop as, as f- feature films became real features as opposed to Uh, short films, or or as you say, the Nickelodeons. And in fact, they made uh, Paramount's known for the first best picture that ever won an Oscar, uh, Wings. Yeah, Wings, yeah, sure. It's it's funny that they've just reissued, or recently reissued it in in a restored version, and at the beginning, they show all the Paramount logos from the beginning to, or actually they go in reverse, So it's strange, but when we talk about logos, that the, the Paramount logo really hasn't changed that much, even though obviously all the other things changed. But who were some of the initial uh, people who who Paramount was able to get both in the front of the cameras and the back of the camera that helped to create its its signature?
1: Well, in the Italian period, they had of course Gloria Swanson. And um, in Sunset Boulevard, when Gloria Swanson, who plays, of course, Norma Desmond, says, you know, I built a studio, referring to Paramount, and without me, there wouldn't have been a Paramount. She's not exactly telling a falsehood, but yeah, she was a very important star. Valentino was a a Paramount star, uh, in the sign And then when you move into the 30s, of course, you get great directors. They had Ernst Lubitsch for a time. Uh, and uh, directed some wonderful, uh, uh, well, they were really musicals with Jeanette MacDonald, One Hour with uh, you and uh, Monte Carlo, where she introduced the song Beyond the Blue Horizon. And that was the period of the great directors, because then you uh, got um, uh, directors like in the 40s, Preston Sturgis, who really made a series of brilliant comedies. Um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, his career was short live because by about 1944, um, it, it was virtually over. He made a couple of uh, films at 20th Century Fox, Unfaithful Yours and Beautiful Blonde from Bashville Bend. But in, the, in his heyday, I mean, movies like The Great McGinty, uh, The Lady um, Eve, um, and Sullivan's Travels, and um, The Miracle at Morgan's Creek, and Hail the Conquering Hero. Those were brilliant comedies. And then, of course, you had Billy Wilder making his first movie at uh, Paramount, The Major and the Minor, with uh, Ginger Rogers, playing a woman who disguises herself as a 12-year-old so she can uh, ride um, Half Price back home to um, wherever it was in the Midwest. But yeah, you know, those those were those were glory years for Paramount.
0: So, obviously, um, Paramount and studios pretty much operated a, a, the way they did for, I don't know, I would say a good twenty years, uh, if not more, until over time we start to see changes for a variety of reasons. But Paramount, uh, clearly, as you discussed in the early chapters. Um, was clearly one of one of the most successful during the period. But over time, we start to see, and this is not a new story, but uh, as studios start to run into issues that would eventually, as we now know, end the studio system, uh, one of the first was, uh, I don't know if it's the first, but we start to see that little by little, the studios are getting into trouble because they also own the, because of their ownership of the of the theaters and and the exhi- the exhibition part of the of the process and and Paramount like the others begins to get into an issue where they have to start divesting themselves of that aspect of their business.
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, that was the consent decree. And of course, it's sometimes called the Paramount decision because Paramount had more theaters than any other studio because Paramount, like MGM, like Warner Brothers, was vertically integrated. Uh, You produced your films, you distributed your films, and you exhibited them in your own theater chain. So, yeah, uh, certainly that contributed to the um, uh, deterioration of the studio system. But then, of course, you know um, there was a question of age. The stars began to age, and they really weren't capable of playing the same roles that they did 10 years earlier. And uh, as the stars aged, the new stars came in. But as the new stars were coming in, the uh, studio system was uh, coming apart because television was... And uh, I I, I certainly know this, having grown up, um, well, grew up in the 40s, but I was well aware of the impact of television in the 1950s. Because you would look at the marquee of your neighborhood theater one day, and there'd be a movie advertised on it. The next day, the theater marquee would be blank. And there was nothing in the paper that said the, the theater went out of business. A couple weeks later, it became a chain store or a supermarket if it was large enough. But, I mean, you were aware of the fact, I was certainly growing up, that something was changing. I couldn't quite articulate it because I was, you know, a kid, but I knew that it wasn't the same. Uh, particularly when you started seeing, you know, young uh, younger actors like Marlon Brando, like Paul Newman, like Joanne Woodward. I mean, these were not the same people that I knew from the 1940s. So yeah, it was it was coming apart. And of course, um, um, the the first major studio to cease production was RKO in 1957, which was very early.
0: Yeah, and one of the you were talking about movie theaters that would disappear or and then be repurposed. I can think of the, the theater I used to go to as a kid. Of course, this was been in the '60s, is now a church. Uh, it's yeah. Still, the marquee actually still exists, but it's a church. I can think of one that became a car dealership. Uh, so yeah, they repurposed the buildings. Of course, one of the other things, and and we're talking about how the studio system started to come apart, was that the studios themselves started more and more contracting out for material rather than producing it themselves directly. They, uh, it was not unusual to have a star or producer or, or something similar like that or a director be somebody who had basic control over the material, and that's something else that took away some of the power of the studios.
1: Yes, uh, well, that started really right after World War II um, with uh, Liberty Productions, so it didn't go very far, but with Frank Capra and uh, and a few others. Then Bogart started his production company, Santana, um, releasing through Columbia. uh, And uh, that's why in 1956, uh, Zanuck left 20th Century Fox. Uh, to form his own company, uh, and he would uh, base this company in Paris. He said, I have to get out of Hollywood because it's being run by agents, by stars who want want, uh, authority over everything. They want to pass on their own stills, their own images, everything. It just has been taken out of the hands of producers. So he considered himself, and he was, and it's true, a creative producer, but if um, a producer is not allowed to exhibit his or her creativity because everything becomes a package deal, the agent puts the package together with the star, with the writer, with the director, and just has it to the studio, and this is it. You like, as Bloody Mary says in South Pacific, oh, you like, you buy. You know, that was it.
0: In quite a bit of the book, especially in, the, in this period, you talk a lot about the finances and also the statistics that you give, as far as even how much they spend on advertising, how much the you know the, the fights with the producers or with the outside people to try to uh, uh, come up with uh, suitable budgets and things, and how the studio was often caught in the caught having to figure out a way to actually continue to make money.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, uh, advertising a film these days is almost as expensive as producing it.
0: Yeah, you gave an example of that, of that the average budget now for advertising is almost, depending on the film, could be close to the cost of the actual filmmaking.
1: That's right, yes.
0: And... In the book, then, as, as during this period where things are starting to unravel or change, this is where we bring in George Weltner, who uh, was an important part of, of the early part of the, you know, the first part of the book before Gulf and Western appeared. And so let's talk a little bit more about Weltner, because he it's an inter- he's an interesting person in that he never considered himself to be a creative person. That wasn't what he considered to be his his forte, and yet he becomes very important to the latter part of Paramount as a separate studio.
1: Who is George yeah. Welter?
0: Who is George Weltner and, and his
1: influence? Well, importance? George Welter, um, you would not know this from his name, but he was, uh, he was Hungarian. His parents were Hungarian, and that's why they had contact with Zucker. Zucker would take very good care of any of um, uh, his fellow Hungarians. And um, when George uh, graduated in 1922 uh, from Columbia with a degree in chemical engineering, he was hired uh, to work in the film uh, processing lab at the uh, Paramount Studio in Astoria. Now, Paramount had a studio in Astoria, Queens. And it also, of course, had the one on Marathon Street in um uh, Los Angeles and Hollywood. But the good thing about the Astoria uh, studio is that if you were a New York based or if you were in a play, uh, you could pick up extra money uh, by going uh, across the Queensboro Bridge to the Astoria studio, work during the uh, morning and afternoon, and then come back and do your show at night. And um, once George Weldner Uh, got this job at Film Processing Lab, he realized how important distribution is because they were preparing the films to be distributed both domestically and uh, internationally. So he kept moving up into distribution and then when um, there was nobody to take over from Barney Balaban when he retired, this would have been in 1964. Uh, Weltner became president of Paramount. Didn't last very long. In '67, um, he was out because in '66, of course, Charlie Bluthorn uh, bought uh, Paramount, so there was no room for him in the new uh, Paramount, which is, of course, what often happens. So yes, um, he he really rose to the occasion. I mean, production, of course, was not his um, forte. But um, he he did have to deal with people like uh, Hal Wallace, because Hal Wallace um, had um, his own production company at Paramount at the time, and um, he wanted a release date for uh, one of his pictures. Weltner wanted a release date for the same picture, but a different release date. And, of course, they clashed, and uh, obviously... um, Weltner had to give in, give in to uh, Wallace.
0: Yeah, that this is where the, the the and I can tell because you had access to his collection, uh, at as you mentioned earlier, University of Wyoming's American Heritage Center. We get a lot of information about what Weltner was going through because I'm guessing because of that collection really helped to build out that part of of the oh, book. Oh, it
1: really it really did. I you really felt sorry for the poor man because. Um, um, I did talk with his son, Jack, who's a, a doctor, um, but he, Jack says that towards the end of his life, um, George had developed um, d- dementia. Uh, at one point, really didn't even know where he was and um, was looking forward to a nice long retirement after having fought the Battle of Paramount. And, uh, you know, just faded Away as, as happens with people with dementia. I mean, they're just, I um, hate to use a cliche, but they are a shell of their former selves, And that's what happened to Jack Weldon. So it's never a happy ending in Hollywood. I mean, you, even though Hollywood made some marvelous movies with happy endings, the, the people involved in the creative end of movie making really didn't have happy endings.
0: So, uh, I mean, obviously, what kind of material is... I mean, you mentioned briefly but in the introduction but, or in your preface, but what kind of materials was it, or is in the archives? I mean, obviously, I'm going to assume memos, but is, is that the large oh, portion?
1: Oh, memos, memos, letters, uh, budgets, particularly. I mean, every, everything. It, it, it's just the most comprehensive archive I've ever seen. I mean, everything that George Welzner brought from Paramount and it
0: uh, but the American Heritage Center I know cuz you can tell from some of the some of the stories that you include or some of the situations that you include I, I can think of the the most obvious one is is the issues with Jerry Lewis that come through in the book where clearly there were uh, disagreements going on between Lewis and and, and the studio
1: yeah, well, that was the whole problem with somebody like Jerry Lewis, who was actually a brilliant comic, but he has an enormous ego. Now, Hal Wallace, um, who actually is, was responsible for uh, Jerry Lewis, because the first Jerry lewis D. Martin movie was my friend Irma, which was produced by Hal Wallace. Hal Wallace realized that uh, in order to survive, you just couldn't keep making, you know, artistic films like Come Back, to Little Sheba. And uh, the Rose Tattoo. I mean, you know, you you had to. Paramount was known for comedies, particularly the road movies. So he gets um, uh, Martin and Lewis, and then uh, Lewis um, and Martin separate, and Martin goes off and actually makes some decent films particularly Some Came Running, on which I thought he gave a great performance, and Lewis stays on and does, you know, Ladies' Man and Cinderella and uh, Visit to a Small Planet and things of that sort, which were really not particularly good films. Hal Wallace would have been able to contain him, but, you see, uh, Welzner was the one who had to take the flack because Welzner, having never been in production, unlike Wallace, who was a producer, you don't know anything about stars and their egos.
0: And Jerry Lewis had a pretty big one. I mean, not that they all don't, but he definitely seemed to have yes, some of the biggest
1: ones. Yeah, he did. Well, a, a lot of people who are comics are essentially insecure, and they make up for it by developing a very oversized ego.
0: So then at this point, then, Welter's finally become president almost like there was nobody else left. So that (laughs) it was sort of like, okay, you're president now. uh, But as you point out, it didn't last very long. Uh, We now get into the period where, which is the real aspect, uh, the the important aspect of, of what we were, what we're talking about, which is how studios became cogs in the wheels of business, other types of businesses. And uh, to, to talk about that, I guess I want to ask uh Paramount was not the first to be bought out but uh who actually where when when do we see the first studio being bought by someone outside of the industry
1: Well um uh, of Records uh in the uh, I think about 1956 bought Columbia um see. uh no uh excuse me Universal I'm sorry I'm sorry um uh, in the 80s um Coca Cola bought Columbia, which does seem like um, a disconnect. Uh, But I remember Variety's headline was, uh, you know, um, Fizzbiz Meets Showbiz. And why Coca Cola bought Columbia uh, is, well, it's not terribly difficult to figure out. But I mean, look, um, you have a lot, any exhibitor. We'll tell you. You make most of your money at the concession stand. So, for your soft drink, you feature uh, Coca-Cola. So,
0: w- going into this now, we've got, and I think the way you explained it was, um, we start to see agents start to get more involved in in um, aspects of the business. Uh, if I remember that right, from one of the chap from from this point in the in the book.
1: Yeah, uh, particularly agencies like uh, Creative Artists, uh, Creative um, CAA, Creative Artists Agency. That was Mike Ovitz's um, uh, company. Uh, And, uh, well, of course, there was always the William Morris, now William Morris Endeavor, uh, ICM International Creative. Uh, And, uh, yeah, uh, that's why, um, as I said, Daryl Zanuck uh, simply left 20th Century Fox. Of course, he came back uh, later, but not as a producer. He came back as as head of the uh, studio, as president.
0: And I know nowadays it's not unusual at all for a studio or a production head to be a former agent. That's just become... Producers tend to come up through that ranks nowadays. Yeah. So... Before, as we talk about the the purchase or the takeover of, of Paramount by Gulf and Western, what was Gulf and Western's business?
1: Well, Charlie Bluehorn, um, uh, who's known as the Mad Austrian, who was either Jewish or Christian, depending on to whom you were speaking, uh, just built up this incredibly diversified company called Gulf and Western, which had. Um, Interests in everything from beef and cigars to uh, zinc, and it even had a financing division. So it it was all over the place. It was a, it was a mega conglomerate, which is really what it was. And Charlie Bludorn got on the board of um, Paramount, and um, his the acquisition of Paramount reminds me very much of a scene in Citizen Kane where Charles Foster Kane is going through all of his assets, and he discovers that one of the things he owns after his mother's death uh, is a newspaper. And he says, you know, I think it might be fun to run a newspaper. I really think, I can imagine Charlie Bluehorn looking at Paramount and saying, gee, I think it would be fun to run a movie studio, to own a movie studio. Because let's face it, um, there is something... Uh, sexy about Hollywood, about movies, about movie stars. I mean, you know, when when uh, Coca-Cola owned Columbia, you had all of these Coca-Cola executives from Atlanta, you know, going on a boondoggle to um, Los Angeles to come back and say, "Oh, I was at a party with Jane and Bobby and Marty." You know, Jane Fonda, Martin Scorsese. Robert De Niro, but you know, they're just bragging about the celebrities that they saw. The celebrities probably had to with a choice but to be um, kind uh, to them because, you know, that's where the money was. But there there was something, uh, uh, and I can understand that appeal of a studio.
0: The funny part about it is we see the same thing with sports teams. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that's another example of, of people who want. You know, multi billionaires who want to own sports teams, not because they're necessarily money makers, but the prestige aspect.
1: You yeah, have to be photographed with a ball player or to have access to a bullpen.
0: So, obviously, Blue Dorn is able to eventually get control of uh, Paramount for Gulf and Western. Uh, how did things change very quickly? I'm assuming it changed quickly. I mean, once he took over.
1: Oh, but once he took over, he realized that um, movie making was not uh, really his thing. And uh, actually, what he did, and it was only for a very short period, but what he did was to get uh, Peter Bart and uh, Robert Evans, who were two extraordinary men, uh, to re- run production. Now, um, the production head, for all practical purposes, although that term was not used, was Robert Evans. And uh, Peter Bart had a title, I think it was something like uh, Vice President, Creative, whatever. Uh, but they two, the two worked together because um, uh, Evans really um, was a visionary, but he did not have much of an education. Bart, on the other hand, had a degree from Swarthmore and the London School of Economics. And together, they really functioned as a team. Now, it was Bart's idea to option uh, uh, Mario Puto's The Godfather. And then, of course, it was an enormous task on the part of Robert Evans to pitch it to the Paramount board because you were making a movie about the mafia. Uh, And there were all kinds of threats coming in and so forth. Um, But he decided that, yeah, it's about the mafia, it's about the Costa Nostra, but it's also about a family. So if the script, uh, which was written by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, and Coppola, although we think of him today as the director, he won an Oscar for the screenplay of Patton with George Scott. But if you, if you make the movie in such a way that it centers around a family, then you can actually sell it to the masses. And it was amazing, because uh, I remember this very well, an R-rated movie in 1972, like The Godfather, did attract families. In fact, when I saw it in a neighborhood theater in New Jersey, I mean, there were, there were parents with their kids.
0: That, that is unusual <laughs> yeah, given the film. Yeah, and
1: you've learned the lessons from that. You know, remember Omer Ta, the the law of silence. You know, you don't snitch, otherwise, you get killed. You know, a brother may have to kill brother.
0: So, Gulf and Western is obviously a, a mega corporation that takes over Paramount. Um, what happens to the the financial aspects of Paramount? Do do we get changes because suddenly they've got to uh, that that the overall corporation starts looking at bottom lines?
1: No, uh, but, uh, actually, Paramount was in um, there were various divisions in um, Gulf and Western. There was the agricultural division. Uh, there was a the financing division. There was metals division. This was leisure time. So it, 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 if if Paramount, for example, uh, if the films did not do as well as had been expected, you know, there were other things that were selling, like beef, like cigars, like New Jersey zinc, you know. I mean, one offsets the other.
0: Did, uh, of of, this, of these studios that were, and we know we're talking about Paramount, but as we even pointed out, they all pretty much fell under the... Uh, the, the roles of just being another part of, of, a, of a corporation. How did Paramount compare as far as continued being able to continue on versus some of the other corporations that took over studios?
1: Well, um, Universal is a prime example. I mean, poor Universal. Um, it was taken over by Decca Records. Uh, then it was merged uh well first it was merged with international and became universal international then it was taken over by decker Beckers. then it was taken over by m uh, c a Lew uh company uh and once um uh, Wasserman had it uh he had it for a while uh but then uh this was the time in the late um, 1980s, around 1988, 89, uh, Sony became very interested in getting into the movie business. So Sony uh, bought Columbia in 1989, and then the other Japanese uh, company, Matrista, which is primarily known for the uh, Panasonic uh, product, uh, bought Universal, so here you have Universal now being owned by uh, a uh, maker of consumer products like Batushta. Well, they didn't know because they were Japanese. I mean, they they were, uh, the it was alien to them having a movie studio. So they unloaded it uh, on uh, Seagram uh, because Ed, Edgar Bromfield Jr. Uh, well fancied himself a producer. So now you have uh, a maker of alcoholic beverages owning a movie studio. Then uh, Seagram dumped Universal and was taken over by Vivendi, a French company, uh, and that didn't work out. Then General Electric, which had NBC at the time, bought Universal and merged it with NBC, and it became NBC Universal. And then General Electric wanted to get out of the business. So it unloaded NBC Universal onto Comcast. So the latest owner of Universal is Comcast. So it went from Decca Records to Comcast
0: and of course, uh, that's similar. it's funny because you you just told the story of Universal to the president. and and in many ways, Paramount's story is very similar. Um, it goes through, and we'll, we can talk about that, but uh, how long did Gulf and Western actually own Paramount, and what led to uh, it you know, changing over?
1: Well, um, in 1978, Charlie Bluthorn uh, was diagnosed with leukemia, and as soon as he got the diagnosis, he started spinning off various divisions. And uh, he died in uh, 83 or 84, I don't remember. And once he passed away, um, um, Martin Davis, who was on the board of um, Gulf and Western, took over. And he got rid of the rest of the divisions, but kept Paramount Communications, uh, oh, excuse me, Paramount, which was then Paramount Pictures Corporation. So. Uh, what was left of Gulf and Western was Paramount, Paramount Television, Desolu, uh Studios, where, of course, I Love Lucy was filmed, and um, Famous Music, the music publishing division, and Simon & Schuster. So that was a nice little package if anybody wanted to buy it. And uh, eventually, the Redstone did. But before he bought Paramount, he bought Viacom from c b s
0: and of course that's where we get to the more current period where uh viacom c b s and Paramount are together and and under the control, as you say of Sumner Redstone and what is his background- what was his background
1: Well, Sumner Redstone is the exact opposite of Charlie Bluthorn, who didn't really have much of an education. Now, Sumner Redstone is uh, Boston Latin school, uh, Harvard B.A., Harvard Law. So, I mean, very impressive credentials. And his father, Michael, owned National Amusements, which was a theater chain, and at the time was the seventh largest theater chain in the country, although, you know, who knows what it's going to be like now. I don't know what it's like where you are, but in New York... Um, well, the Angelica uh, has opened, Film Forum is opened, uh, maybe one or two other small ones, but, you know, AMC, uh, no, not at all. And I don't really know what is going to happen to these theater chains, um, particularly now with the Delta variant. But, you know, Michael, uh, the father, did build up, um, not exactly an empire, but certainly a fiefdom of um, theaters. And, of course, Sumner took that over uh, when the the father died. But, you know, that wasn't enough. You see, the same with Zucker. It's not enough to own a Penny Arcade. It's not enough to own a Nickelodeon. It's not enough to have your own distribution outfit. He he wanted more, and he wanted more. He wanted more. And he found out that... um, uh, Um, CBS had its own um, syndication uh, operation called Viacom. But because of the new ruling called FinCEN, uh, Financial Interest and Syndication, uh, a network could not own a syndication division. So Viacom was up for sale, and um, Sumner uh, bought it. Uh, And... um, that that was uh, around um, 1986, 1987. Now, um, th- and that wasn't enough for him. When Paramount was available after uh, Charlie Ludor's death, um, uh, Redstone decided, I'm going to add that, Paramount Studios, to Viacom. And that wasn't even enough, because in 1999, um, the other he realized that the other studios had networks. Disney had ABC. Uh, at the time, I guess it would have been uh, GE uh, had uh, NBC. And so, what was CBS left? was well, the and,
0: one that was still there. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, CBS. Well, well the, the the Fox channel. Uh, was owned by Rupert Murdoch, and the only game in town was uh, CBS. So he, Mel Carmison actually merged um, uh, CBS uh, with uh, Viacom, becoming not CBS Viacom, Viacom comes first, Viacom CBS, which was the exact opposite of NBC Universal. Where the network preceded the studio name. And of course, uh, Carmesan thought, well, you know, Sumner's in his 70s. I mean, he's not going to go on forever. Little did he know that Sumner had every intention of going on forever.
0: And in fact, that's where we sort of dovetail between what you originally wrote and then the new, the newer material in, in, the, in the new introduction to the paperback edition where you continue to bring the story forward. Uh, what is interesting is it seems like you're right, they want to hold on to that name. So, for example, while all the different companies have their own streaming services now, Paramount seems to have been the one that still has a studio name on it. Uh, NBC's is called Peacock, so there's no sign of of anything there and none of the other ones mentioned studio names, but, uh, Paramount still is called Paramount plus. So they're still holding yeah. on to that name.
1: Well, they should. It's a very venerable name. I mean, the studio goes back to, I uh, think 1917.
0: Right. So, uh, obviously Mel Carmisen becomes the, 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 person that sort of bridges the original book and then the new material. And, and the big issue, obviously, as you point out, is that uh, he wants to have control and is never able to get it.
1: Yes, and uh, I think he realized it, so he pulled out. Um, but, you know, he was, he was not meant to run Viacom. I mean, uh, um was great in radio. As a matter of fact, radio was his preferred right. medium.
0: Well, but that's part of the whole thing realize, about how— you know, these conglomerates had all kinds of uh, of media material, media uh, properties, and, and radio, at that point at least, was incredibly important
1: still. Yeah. Well, in his heyday, Sumner could run the whole show. But, of course, uh, beginning, I guess, around 2011, uh, he began to deteriorate. Um, I mean, he became erratic in restaurants, and as a matter of fact, many restaurants didn't want uh, him to uh, return. He became persona non grata.
0: So, obviously, that takes us pretty close to present day. I and mean, currently speaking, um, who is in charge of Paramount?
1: Well, um, uh, Backish is the president, but of course, now... Uh, The daughter, Sherry Redstone, runs the show. So she is really head of uh, Viacom. And actually, I I have great sympathy and respect for Sherry Redstone. It must have been hell for the last several years when Sumner developed this insatiable desire for sex and steak. And all these women were servicing him. I mean, he had one mistress uh, after another, and uh, one caregiver after another, uh, and he gave them uh, houses. He actually bought, for his last two uh, women, uh, houses that cost over a million dollars each. And for the daughter to have to sit by and watch the way her father was, first of all, deteriorating, and secondly, uh, always refusing uh, her uh, the control that she really wanted. I mean, when she married uh, Rabbi Korf, um, Ira Korf. I mean, you know, Sumner was enthralled because Korf had all these degrees, including a Ph.D. from Tufts. You know, and that impressed Sumner. Sumner actually made. Irocus who had no experience whatsoever in media the vice president of national amusements and then later made him president now you have the daughter standing by and watching her husband being elevated step by step where she's at the bottom rung of the ladder mm-hmm. and she was uh, she was well educated too she had a, a law degree as well is um, a had given up on his son, Brent, because he realized that Brent was not meant for the corporate world. So he was trying to groom successors. But you see, the trouble with being a patriarch, like some of the Redstone, is that you think in terms of sons. Or if you can't have a son, you want a son surrogate. The last thing in the world you would think of was your daughter.
0: Right. So, uh, obviously... Uh, the corporate aspect uh, of Paramount is is still pretty involved in, in a in a corporate speak. So the book definitely shows how we got to the present day and and uh, there's no question that you were able to pull together a lot of information not only from from Weltner's material but from other sources and I think one of the things that I found most interesting in the discussions throughout the book was all of the numbers you were able to pull together, the statistics of finances and, and other things, especially back in the production days where um, you could see where uh, it became such an issue with working and, and producing and the financial aspect of it. So but nowadays we're in a position where these these various what remains of the studios still have value. Even if they've completely changed the way they work.
1: Yeah. Well, I I owe a great deal to uh, George Wilder because he kept everything.
0: Well, I and, really.
1: That's, yeah. Oh, excuse me. Yeah.
0: No, go on. I'm sorry. I didn't. No, and you.
1: that's why, it, in many ways, it it was not even a chore to do it. Um. I, I, I. He made it so easy for me.
0: So um, it sounds like uh, this update definitely went along with the other material. It's a good, good reason to, for people to, to not only go back to the original material but also to get uh, the update of what, changed, what has changed since you first wrote the book. So uh, I really think this is a book that uh, does a great job of explaining what happened to a particular studio and, and to a lesser extent the rest of Hollywood uh, over the more than hundred years of, of, of Hollywood movie making. So I really appreciate the time you were able to spend with me about talking about Paramount Pictures. And, and as you say, the title is engulfed and obviously the Gulf comes right straight from Gulf and Western, but we can see that, uh, it hasn't stopped. And these media conglomerates, uh, have continued to be there. And and I really appreciate the detail that you provided and, and the discussion we had.
1: So oh, you're very kind. Thank you.
0: Thank you. My thanks to Bernard. I hope you will find his study of Paramount to be interesting and illuminating. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.